the Lord. Everybody good with that? Okay. We've been talking about who we are, and uh, today I want to talk about like who's in our net as a church, and I'll explain that in a second. Uh, but more importantly, why you're in the net. We heard from Charlie Rowe last week, and Charlie had a great testimony, but you know, there's not just, it's great to get to know Charlie, he's a great guy, but there's a reason that he's here. And it's not just to sit there and look pretty, he's a great guy, you know, but he's got something to do here. He's in the net for a reason, and everyone here is. Um, and another thing I want to explain about today is, you know, why do we look like we look? Why do we have church like we have church? Um, why do you have to explain more to the people that you invite to come here? Then <laughs> you do, don't you? You know, you say, you come to church with me, but let me tell you something before you go. Why do we have to do that? Why do we look like we look? You know, sometimes I have people say, did you know that guy that's taking the offering has an ankle bracelet on? You know, people say, why, why do you do that? Well, there's a reason we do this. And uh, that's what I want to talk about today. You know, we fish with a net, and this is um, from the Lord speaking this to me, and, and uh, you all have heard this several times, but the reason that our church looks as eclectic as it looks is we really believe in fishing with a net. In Matthew 13, Matthew 13 God tells, the, tells us that his kingdom is like a dragnet. It's the only place in the Bible that that word is used is for a dragnet. And he's dragging people up into this net. And that's what we do. We have a whole collection of different kinds of people. that we're, It's an indiscriminate way of fishing. You just pull up people. And that's the way we approach life. When people come into our church, we realize that God's brought them here for a reason, regardless of how we can see if they fit in. Our job's not to cull the fish. Our job's not to tell you if you're good or bad. Our job is to try to figure out why you're here. And so we watch and we look and we want to find out what God's doing in your life. Um, one of the people that have ended up in our net is awesome woman of God. And we're going to hear from her this morning. And uh, God brought her here. And so we're so glad. Stephanie Hansen, come on up. Let me pray over you, Steph. So, Father, I thank you for this woman of God. I thank you, Lord, for bringing her to this church. I thank you, God, that she has a heart that she that she has the heart she has, God. And I thank you, Lord, for her past because her past has given her a victorious and glorious future. And I thank you for her, God. I thank you for the power you've put in her. I thank you for the authority that you've put on her. And I pray now, God, that that power and authority would come forth as she shares the story to give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. <clears throat> that was good. Uh, my name is Stephanie Hansen, and I am so incredibly grateful to get to tell my story today. It sounds really loud up here. So um, uh, my story basically consists of two themes, and it's with Jesus and without Jesus. And I'm going to start with my story without Jesus. Um, my story without Jesus was filled with a lot of pain, a lot of trauma, a lot of drinking, and a lot of drugging. I used anything and everything in me to try to fix what was going on inside of me. And this started at a very early age. You see, um, I was actually taught that if I had problems or if I had issues to just drink, my mother would put whiskey in my bottle as a baby to help calm me down. And it worked. It worked well. Um, but alcohol was never forbidden in my home. 
It was very accepted, and it was actually more normal for us to drink than it was to even have dinner. So I grew up being able to drink whenever I wanted, however I wanted. It just wasn't an issue. And I didn't really have the desire when I was young. I just did it because it's what we did. And by the time I was 10, that all changed. My parents had married and divorced each other three times, and I was one angry little girl. And this is about the time that I started drinking with intention and on purpose. So at one point around this age, I started drinking every day for a couple of months, and I got to where I couldn't drink anymore, and I started getting the shakes pretty bad like I am right now. And uh, I, remember, I remember going to my mom, asking her, Mom, do you think that I have Parkinson's like my grandfather? And she said, she said, Stab, you're just a nervous kid. Like, you're okay. Go, go do what you need to do. Um, but she assured, you know, she just assured me it's okay. And, but the fact is I was already suffering from the disease of alcoholism. And I didn't know it. No one around me knew it. So I started huffing fingernail polish remover, rubbing alcohol, whatever I could find with a strong smell to just help me be okay inside. Because my insides felt like they were trying to crawl out of me. And... And I just did, started doing whatever I could to help calm that, to help make me okay. And so I started smoking cigarettes. I started smoking pot. I uh, started failing school. I started getting into fights. And I got out of control really fast. By the time I was 16, I was in the hospital with a broken neck from a motorcycle accident. And the doctor had asked me, Steph, have you been drinking? I'm like, absolutely not. No way. And he's like, I know you're lying. And I was like, well, I might have had a couple. And he said, I know you're lying about that too. Because the fact is that you were so drunk that you limbered up enough um, to save your life. Because if you would have tensed up at all on impact, it would have killed you. So the only thing that saved your life was that you were drunk. And in my mind, I thought, oh, God, how could you do this to me? How could you let this happen? And I thought, thank you, alcohol, for saving my life. And that's the way I lived. So he told me I was a hair away from paralyzation from the neck down or death. And, uh, and because alcohol was now so important in my life, that's, that's just, I, I just went even more out of control. Um, I quit school. I started working to support my habits. And by the time I was 18, uh, it was not good. I started doing methamphetamines, and it's something I swore I would never do because everyone around me was suffering terribly from that. And, and I, I said I wouldn't do it, but I ended up doing it anyway. And that led me to a whole nother level of darkness and destruction. Around the age of 20, I realized that I needed to make a change and I needed to get my, my act together. And so I did. I was able to do it. And I, I pulled myself together. I uh, went back and moved to my dad's farm. And I pulled off getting my high school diploma. And I ended up getting an associate's degree in commercial art and advertising. And then I went to Dallas. I went to the big city to get a, get a job and pursue a career. And, and I was very successful. I did really, really well. Uh, I was functional for the next decade. And I partied a lot throughout this time, but I was able to, to, to just look like I had it all together. So by the time that I was 30, I had the best job I'd ever had. I was making more money than I even thought was possible. I had an amazing downtown artist loft in Dallas, and I was dating a great guy. I had a new truck. And to the world, I looked pretty darn good. I looked like I had it all together. But inside, I was crumbling, and I was dying inside. And I didn't have it together at all. 
And for the, because for the previous six years, I had started drinking every day whether I wanted to or not. My illness, my disease had progressed so much that um, I was really out of control. Um, I didn't think that was an issue, though. I thought the issue was the city, the great apartment, the great guy, the, the great loft. Like, I thought that was my problem. And so I gave it all up, except for the truck. I kept the truck. And I moved back to my dad's farm, which is, seems to be a pattern in my life. And, um, and I thought that the simpler way of life, the simpler, slower life would help me feel better inside because I was always looking for something to make me feel better inside, and it didn't matter what it was. And so I headed, I headed to the farm, and I now had a lot of money and a lot of time, and I started drinking earlier and earlier. I typically consumed about 24 to 30 Budweiser's a day, three to four packs of cigarettes, five to six joints, and that was just my baseline. That didn't count if I partied. So I was beyond sick and tired of being sick and tired, and one drunk night I just cried out to God, just please show me what my problem is or just let me die because I can't do this anymore. And, and I truly didn't know what my problem was. And so two days later, my cousin shows up on my doorstep, and she says, Steph, I've got this CD I want you to listen to, and it's a talk about alcoholism and addiction. Will you please listen to it and see if I have a problem? I'm like, sure, give me a beer and we'll listen to it. And so, so we did. And, what, and, and listening to that, it was an answered prayer, but I didn't, realize, I didn't realize it was an answered prayer. And so I found out I had a problem, but it wasn't drugs and alcohol. Um, drugs and alcohol was the solution to my problem because my, my problem was, was I didn't have God. And... I had believed in God my whole entire life, but I was never connected to him. I always thought he did for you guys, and he blessed you, but he didn't bless me. And so if you had my life, you had to drink. You had to use drugs because it was so terrible. So I was at a crossroads. I could either, having had this information, I could either keep doing what I had always done, keep getting what I would always got, or I could accept spiritual help. But the problem was I didn't know how to accept spiritual help. And I didn't know what that looked like, and I couldn't wrap my head around it. And I couldn't wrap my head around not drinking because I had done it my whole life. I didn't know how to have Christmas or how to, how to have a birthday or how to do anything without drinking. It was so normal to me. And so I wanted spiritual help desperately. Um, and so for the next few weeks, I tried to immerse myself in the Bible, in prayer, and in the purpose-driven life, but none of it worked. It wasn't enough to keep me from drinking and using so I broke down and I went to my first AA meeting and, and sitting in a circle were eight people and they were talking, they weren't talking about drugs or alcohol or they weren't talking about their problems. They were talking about what God was doing in their life, how he was restoring them, how he was restoring their hearts, their peace, their marriages, their jobs. He was restoring everything. And it was in that meeting that I decided that I wanted what they had and I would do whatever they did to get what they got. And so I completely surrendered my life and I committed to work the 12 steps. But here's the deal. When I got home, I was, I was shaking violently. Like, and when I say I was coming out of my skin, I'm not exaggerating. Because um, I had been drinking every day for six years. And so the detox was terrible. And, and so I had committed to, to, to living this way of life and doing the steps. But I, I didn't know what else to do. So I thought, well, if I just need to quit drinking, then I'll just smoke a joint and I'll be okay. And so I went to go do that. And as I was standing there to to do what I was going to do, I heard in my ear very clearly, Steph, it's all or nothing. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I've done it now. Like, I'm hallucinating, and I have not even had any LSD. Like, I don't know how that happens. 
And so I was like, well, now I really need this, this substance because now I'm losing my mind. And so I went to go finish the job. And when I did, I heard as clearly and as calmly and as lovingly as I heard it the first time, Steph, it's all or nothing. And I took everything that I had and I went and I flushed it down the toilet. And I shook in my bed for three days, detoxing. And when I got up, I got up with that firm resolution to work the steps with everything that I had left because I was convinced if I didn't do something different, I was going to die. And so I started working the steps, and it was only a short amount of time before things started to radically change inside of me. I started having peace, clarity, intuition. I realized that I was not only not drinking or using, but I wasn't even thinking about doing it or not doing it. And that had never happened in my life before. I was excited about life for the first time ever, ever. I went from hating everyone and everything to loving everyone and everything, even myself. And that was huge. I got to start going to rehabs and jails and halfway houses and hospitals. And I got to start helping others find freedom. And I got to start giving away what was given to me. My old life died and my new life was born. Dang. <laughs> Working the 12 steps is often described as a self-help program, but it's not the truth. The 12 steps are a God-help program. We work the steps to get the junk out of the way that blocks us off from him so that he can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He performs the miracle. He relieves the insanity. And to illustrate this point, I want to read from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, page 84, which are the 10 step promises, which happen in my life very quickly. It says, we have ceased fighting any, anything or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor, and if tempted, we will recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given to us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We're not fighting it. Neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid, and that is our experience, and that is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. On page 25, it reads this, The great fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we can never do by ourselves. So I haven't had the need or the desire to drink or use drugs since March of 25th of 2004. And for that, I am truly grateful. <clears throat> I get to stand here, a new woman, and tell you that God's still in the business of miracles. He's still in the business of resurrections. He's still in the business of setting captives free and healing broken hearts. I'm living proof of that, and there are many here today that are living proof of that as well. My life is nowhere close to perfect today, but I can honestly tell you that I will not trade my absolute worst day with God for my absolute best day without him. I hope that my story illustrates that none of us is ever too far gone to get a connection with him. Thank you, and God bless you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Steph. I, she, she's a powerful person. Um, and what I said before, she carries tremendous authority 
and she's nervous up here, but she leads our recovery group on Wednesday, I mean on Monday nights, and uh, her testimony is so powerful. Um, but I, I just want to draw attention to her because though she's small in stature, she's powerful and great in the Lord. She's one of those that God brought into the church. And um, she's one of those that God highlighted to me right off the bat, and I knew that she had something to bring that, you know, when Lyndall spoke to me about her, she does some of this at Randall County. She does it with the inmates there. And uh, I wanted her to do it here. It, it, I had no hesitation to embrace her and to put her into a place where she could do this in this body. I don't always do that. And normally uh, at this church, I like to get to know someone for six months. But once in a while, whenever God just speaks to my heart, I really know it's right and I know the timing's on. And I, I, th I thank you for coming and I thank you for doing this in faith. But it's not that I just want to talk about Stephanie. What I want to talk about is the dynamic of this body and the dynamic of the way God's built this church and the way God is building this church and that you are here for a reason just like she is here for a reason. That you are equally powerful, that you are equally important. It may take you several months, maybe even years, for you to find your spot, but whenever that spot is found, then it is my job to help you to find a place to release what's in you into the world. If we were only fishing for a certain kind of fish, you know, when I say that, I, I don't know if you know this, but if, you go, if you're a pastor and you go to pastor programs or you go to things that try to teach you how to do church, that they, li they literally tell us in some of these seminars that you need to know the type of person, the demographic that you're going to attract. And they'll justify that by saying that Jesus came for the Jews, he didn't come for the Gentiles, and he knew specifically what his task was, and so we should know what our task is. And so our task is to go out and reach professional people that can come in and contribute to the church because it's, it's, it, in that mindset, it's all about finding people that other people want to be around and finding people that can have enough money to perpetuate the ministry so that you can continue to have a church 20 years from now. Well, this is our 20th year, and we've never done that. We don't put the richest people on the elder board. You know, just because someone's a doctor doesn't mean they immediately get a spot of leadership. We don't, we don't approach life like that. We never have, we never will. We know that when God brings people into our church, it's going to be an eclectic group of people, and they're all equally important. They're all equally important. You're not more important than the person next to you, but you're not less important than the person next to you. You have an accountability to be who God created you to be, just like Stephanie does. Her life was hidden with drugs and alcohol for years, but it, it, it's so funny to me how our greatest failure is not what defines us. It's what happens as a result of our greatest failure. When we pick ourselves up and we begin to live the life that God has put inside of us to live, that becomes the testimony that God wants to put on the showcase. You may not realize this, but if you're a bad boy or a bad girl, if you've been way out there, that your, your potential for greatness is equal to your potential for darkness. And that when you begin to walk in that greatness, that you will do it with the same zeal and the same effectiveness that you did it in the darkness. So the darker it's been for you, the more you've been out there, the greater the potential is you for you to, to affect the kingdom of God. That's what this church is about. We fish with a net because we never know when we're going to pull up a Stephanie Hansen. We never know when we're going to pull up someone in this church that's going to be a world changer.
You know, in, in the early church's days, they had the same problem. There's people that come into church and they look around and, and they say, I don't want to be here because I don't feel safe. And, you, you, yeah, and it, is, it is kind of a little bit laughable because we're so used to being in this environment. But the truth is there are people that have literally left this church because they feel like some of the people we embrace or they even give a place to or a platform to to be able to minister in what they... They get upset about that and they leave because they don't like the environment and they'll always do it like... They'll blame it on their children. Well, I don't want my children in that environment. It's the same excuse the children of Israel used when they wouldn't go in the promised land. They came to the edge of the promised land. They saw giants. They came back out and they said, there are giants in the land. It's a great land and we want to take it, but we don't want to go in there for the sake of our children. Well, we know what happened 40 years later after they died off. <laughs> Joshua came and said, these children that you were so worried about are now going to be the ones that are going to go into the promised land and take what you wouldn't have the courage to take. That's kind of where we're at today. The generation, my generation, has excluded so many people, has marginalized so many people, have pushed people out of the way so many times that it's our children now that have come up without these prejudices, without these limitations, that are embracing all kinds of people. And what's amazing with that is all these people come in and they have a purpose and a plan, and it's to reach the world for Christ. You know, in James chapter 2, he said, you know, how can you say you have faith in Jesus? No, read this first line. How can you say that you have faith in Jesus and yet you favor one group of people above another? That's a great question. How can we have divisions in our mind like, oh, they're good people, they're bad people, they're good people, they're bad people. How do we do that? And he says, suppose an influential man comes into your worship meeting and he's wearing a gold ring and expensive clothing and also a homeless man in shabby clothes comes in. Now, he's not just talking about money here. He's talking about different people groups. And you can put anything in these blanks. It doesn't have to be a rich man and a poor man. It could be a black man and a white man. It could be a gay man and a straight man. It could be a, a, a Democrat or a Republican. It could be an educated man, an uneducated man. It could be anything. Just fill in the blank. It doesn't matter. He's not talking about money here. He's talking about people groups. How can you say that you have faith in Jesus, yet you favor one group of people above another? That is wrong. You can't do that and say that you belong to the Lord. And then he goes on and says, if you show special attention to the rich man in expensive clothes and say, here, sit in this seat of honor right up front, but you turn to the poor man and you say, stand over here, you can sit on the floor in the back. Here, listen to this. You've, de you've demonstrated gross prejudice. Gross prejudice. And you've used an evil standard of judgment. They had the same problem in the early church. People are like, what, what are they doing in church? How come they're up on the platform? Why are they letting that guy share testimony? Why are they letting that person preach? Why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? You know, I don't, I don't know about that place. It's amazing to me that we read the Bible and we say this is the absolute authority for our faith, yet we don't live it at all. We really want to here. We really want to. We want to, to not give preferential treatment to someone just because they have money. We don't want to give preferential treatment to someone just because they've been in church for 40 years. We really do want to honor everyone the same because we never know what's going to be pulled up in the net. 
in John 21. There's two miraculous catches of fish in the New Testament. And in John 21, it's, it's the one about when, when Peter had denied Christ and he went back fishing. And they'd been out in the boat all night long and they'd fished and he caught nothing. And, and all the disciples were with him. And, and in the morning, there was a man on the shore. As dawn was coming up, the sun was coming up. And they saw this man on the shore and he was cooking something. And they looked over there and the man on the shore shouted to him out in the boat. He said, do you have any food out there? Did you all catch anything? And they said, no, we didn't catch nothing. He said, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat, pull it up, and you'll catch something. Well, they did, and we know they caught. It was a miraculous catch of fish, a miraculous catch. And John turned to Peter and goes, that's Jesus. That's Jesus on the shore. And Peter just dove in. He says, okay, and he just dove in, and he swam to the shore. The other ones, they came to the shore pulling the little net with the fish in it, and they got in a little boat, and they came, and, and they followed him. But Peter got there before him, and, and he got out, and Jesus was cooking fish and bread on a fire. So we know one thing. If he can cook bread on a campfire, he's a darn good camper. I'm just telling you, he is really good. So he's cooking bread and fish on this campfire. And then Peter comes up, and he's like, you know, Jesus, you know, he's Jesus is resurrected. I mean, and here's Jesus cooking. And Jesus says the funniest thing to Peter. He says this to him. Peter, he says, go back and bring some of the fish you just caught. And I thought, he's cooking fish. He's already got fish. Why would he need Peter to go get some fish? Because verse 11 that follows that is the most important verse in this whole chapter. Because verse 11 in this chapter tells us what we as a church are really about. It tells us what, what God has in his heart for us. The reason that we fish with a net. Peter climbed back into the boat. He dragged the net to the shore. And it was full of large fish. Here the Greek has three different words for large. We know it's the most specific language that's ever been on the face of the earth, the Greek language. And there's three different words for large. And this particular word that they used here, for these large fish, it means not just big, it means important. Great importance, great power, great authority. He pulled up 153. Now, I don't know how long it takes to count 153 fish. I would think it would be very difficult. Wouldn't you, Perry? They'd be flipping around. I mean, you'd be counting them around. You could, it would be hard to count 150. It would take time. Jesus is cooking... He just said, just go get some fish. I don't know that he really wanted them to pull them up and count them and decide what kind of fish they were and all that, but they did that, and they recorded it here. Well, we know it, it's not about that. It's about this prophetic picture that God wanted in his scripture to tell us that it's important you fish with a net because sometimes you pull up some very important, very great, very powerful fish in and, and 153 of them. Why 153? What a weird thing. And there's been a lot of people say a lot of different things about this. But for some reason in my mind, and I feel like it's from the Lord, I feel like every time I read this, I have no doubt what this 153 means. This is the number of nations that were on the earth at the time Jesus was doing this. 2005, we prayed for every nation on the face of the earth. There was 225 of them. All those flags are hanging in the children's room. That's all the nations we prayed for in 2005. We prayed 225 nights that year, and it was so powerful. But the number of nations in our world is always changing. Today, right now, as we speak, there's 195 nations in the world. It's always changing. 
And I believe that when this was written, Jesus knew, the Holy Spirit knew, that there was 153, and the reason there's 153 big fish, important, full of authority, powerful fish, is because he says, you got to fish with a net because you're going to pull up people that are going to affect their nation. These are big, world-changing people, Peter. He said, you can stay on the boat if you want to. You can go back fishing and fish all night and have a worthless, meaningless life, or you can get back in. See, that's what it said. He got back in the boat. You see, you have to get back in the boat. You have to get back in the game of doing life the way God wanted you to do it so that you can begin to fish and bring in what God wants you to bring in because you never know who the world changers are. There's 153 of these big fish in this net. It's crazy. I believe Stephanie Hansen is a big fish. I believe that God allowed her to come into this place and we gave her a place where she can operate in great authority. I believe she has great authority to break the power of addiction in this place. I believe Charlie Rogue, big fish. I believe Chantel Hicks, big fish. I believe a lot of you guys are big fish. I believe that you've been pulled up in this net of this church because God wants you to reach the little nation that you've been called to reach. You're a world changer. Think about Peter. Peter chose to get back in the boat. Peter chose to get back in the game. And one of the first things he did is he sent him to Cornelius' house because Cornelius was a big fish that was going to bring Gentiles into the kingdom of God. And it was a hard thing to do, but that's what he was called to do. He could have stayed on the boat and just fished and lived out all his days. Just like a lot of people do, they... They don't want to be who God created them to be, and God gives you that option. You can live a, you know, just live a life where you blend in and don't matter, and, but you're, you, you, more than likely you're a big fish. More than likely you're in this body for a reason. More than likely you're here because you have a ministry or you have an ability to reach an entire people group for the Lord. Hang with me. I know... Last week and this week it's run over, but I want to finish this so it'll just take a minute longer. It said that though there were many fish in this net, it didn't break. They marveled at that. This net didn't break. What's the net? What's the, what's the significance of a net? And I think to understand that, we have to go to that parable that Jesus talked about so many times in Scripture where he said, my father is like a great king that's throwing out a wedding banquet and he has this hall full of chairs and tables and he has a, he want, he's inviting all these guests and everybody keeps declining. He's invited all of these people and the thing's only about half full. And the king's like any father would be. I've spent all this money. I've got all this rented. I've got space for, you know, 10 jillion people and there's just not that many people here. I want to fill the thing up. So in this parable, the king says to the servant, go out into the highways and byways and just bring every maimed, blind, crippled, everything it says in there, bring them into the deal. And the servant goes, we've already done that. We knew your heart, king. We knew you would want to do that. We've already done it, and there's still a ton of room. And so now we get down to the net. And the king says this to the servant, I don't care what you have to do. I want you to go out in the highways and hedges and I want you to compel them to come in. Compel them. It means force them to come in. I believe that we're the kind of church we are because I believe we're an end times church. I believe we're into this season right here. 
I believe that all the low-hanging fruit in the world has been taken, and now we're having to go to the highways and byways and hedges to find people to come into this church. But we have to compel them. We have to force them into church. And so how do you force people to come into the net? Well, you don't. The net forces them to come to the shore. The net, the net is what compels them. You see, who put the fish in the net? All the people had to do was drag the net, but who put the fish in the net? God did in the miraculous catch. God could have had it where the fish jumped in the boat. I've seen that on YouTube where they just jump in the boat. He didn't do that. He said, people, get the net and cast it in, and then when you draw it up, I'll put the fish in the net that I want in the net. That's what our charge here as a church is we're to drag a net, and then God brings the people he wants here, and then our job is to bring them to the shore and then to love them. You see, to compel someone to do something, you have to use the most powerful force in the universe. To compel someone to do something, you've got to use the most powerful force in the universe. What's the most powerful force in the whole universe? Threatening people about hell? Does that force them into church? Do you have to warn them, scream at them, tell them if if they don't turn, they're going to burn? I mean, does that force people? No, we've tried that. It doesn't work at all. What compels people? What's the most powerful? Oh, if it's, do we realize there's a force that has compelled God to send his son to save the world? A force that's so powerful in the universe that it could force God to do something? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son? That the most powerful force in the whole world, the thing that compels people to come in, is love? Not theology, not programs, not personality. It's love. I mean, I'm talking about love. I'm not talking about making a certain people group a mission field. That's not love. I'm not talking about making a certain people group, you, you know, where you've got this charge, I've got to go out and reach all the crackheads in the city. You know, the deal is the way that you, you compel people to come to God is the only way that God's ever, it's the only thing that's ever compelled any of us. Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to judge the world. I came into the world to save the world. My my mercy triumphs over judgment. He comes into the world so that he can love the world, so he can bring them to his Father. Our job is to love the people that are in the net. Our job is to love each other. That is the net, and it will not break. I don't care how much pressure it seems like is on the church. There's not a people group that you can bring in and embrace in your church that God says is going to break it because you love them so much. It's never wrong to love too. It's never wrong to love too much because you can't love too much. It's the thing that compels them to come in. It's the net. We have to love. We have to love the world. We can't let it go because we know as the world grows more lawless that we're going to have a temptation to not endure to the end and because of increased lawlessness people's love will grow cold in the end times that's what's happening in the churches today 
That's why people only want to have people in churches that are law-abiding and fit the mold. But I'm telling you this, that the world's going to become more and more lawless. I'm not talking about breaking man's law. I'm talking about lawless and breaking God's law. There's going to be whole generations. There's whole groups of people that live contrary to this law. And God says it doesn't change the fact that you have to love them and you have to love them to the very end. It's your love that has to endure to the end. I get, I get, I laugh at people about that. You know, well, we have to endure to the end. Well, what does that mean? You know, somebody going to knock on your door and say, do you believe in Jesus? And Deny Christ or I'm going to cut your head off? No, that's not what that means. He's talking about love. Because of increased lawlessness, the love of many grows cold. He's saying that's what has to endure to the end. So we have a challenge. We are a dragnet church. We're bragging all these people up in here, and they all look so different, and they all have different ministries. But we have to keep them because we don't know which ones are the big fish that are going to come forth and change the world. But we know we have a lot of them. We know we do. We just have a charge to continue to love them and keep them in this place and keep them in this net. You know, Revelation 14, 6 says that the good news is to go forth to every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. So it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you're done or what you're doing. God wants you. And you don't let the enemy tell you that he doesn't. And you don't let the church tell you that he doesn't. He wants you. He wants you because you have the ability to reach a people group that no one else has the ability to reach. And it's in God's heart that every single prisoner in the TDC units across the state know him as Lord, know him as Savior. It's, it's God's will that... that Every single prisoner. I can't go in there and change any of that. But there might be a big fish that comes through this house that somebody has gotten a vision for greatness that God's put in their heart about Jesus and is able to go into that world and change that world for Christ. We got builders in this church. They, you know, every uh, land developer, every builder that's in this, in this city, God wants them to be building the kingdom. We've got big fish that, that can go out and touch every person. God wants every person in the gay community to, to know the truth about who he is. Do you know that? And that there's people that are coming through these doors and in this church that could be the big fish that could go into those communities and bring effect, changing, life-changing effect. We don't know who those people are. Our job is to love, and because of increased lawlessness, because things don't always look the way we think they should look, we can never let our love grow cold. We can't. We've got to continue to cast the net. God will not stop until he has his table full, and we are the only, <laughs> we're the only plan he has. The church is the only plan God has. He's not going to wave a magic wand. We have to cast the net, and the net has to be love, and that has to be what compels people to come to the Lord. We've got to love, love, and continue to love all the way down to the end, no matter how difficult it gets. So, stand up.
I just want to ask you a question as I pray for you this morning. I just want to know if, if you would just be honest enough in your heart to say, am I one of those big fish? Am I one of those important fish that God wants to, God wants to use to reach an entire group, group of people? I think some of you are. And then the next question, if you, if you think you are, is, Lord, what would you have me to do? And you're just surrendering your heart to him and being willing to do whatever he calls you to do. Maybe you're one of those that's had a little trouble loving people that are different than the way you are. I just, I just, you can't love them with your own power. You can't will yourself to love someone. But the love of God flowing through you can help you love people that you couldn't normally love. I liked what Stephanie said. She said, I used to hate everybody, and then I found myself loving everybody. And that was something God did inside of her. She didn't do it. So I just pray for everyone in this room that's having trouble, God, loving other people. Increase their love. Love through them, God. Touch your people, God. Touch us all. Let us be a church, God, that truly is a place where everyone feels safe, where everyone feels loved, everyone feels valued. We thank you for that, God. Bless your people this morning as they go on their way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're ministering this morning, come on up. Um, we want to pray for you if you need prayer this morning for, for any reason whatsoever. Thank you for coming this morning. Enjoy your afternoon.